If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Mopac Audio. A note to listeners. The following podcast contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Previously on Lisk, Long Island serial killer. Oh, between Pip and Driver? Well, I didn't procure the clients for her. You know, I just drove her, and uh, so they offered like $500. So we said, okay, since, you know, it's less traffic, even though we never went out that far. Oak Beach is a peculiar place. It's really right down the road from East Hampton and all the places where the titans of industry go to spend their summers. Something freaked her out. I heard someone say, you know, what's your location? And then I, I could tell that was an operator, and then I realized, oh, that's 911. And I was like, no, man, I think something really happened to her, man. She was out, she was screaming. She had called the police while she was in Old Beach. They're basically laughed out of the place. I mean, Shannon was in her mid-20s. She was an escort. Nobody was really taking this seriously. Shannon worked as a prostitute. Not that there's less empathy or less concern, but certainly the fact and her lifestyle contributed to perhaps some of the delay of getting the ball rolling. I was a weekend reporter on in 2010, and um, a news release came through that remains were found by the beach. I, I saw the crime scene unit, and they were pulling bags out. It was hard to see, but something was happening. They found something. My name is Chris Moss. I'm a TV producer whose team spent much of the last three years working to understand what happened in the Long Island serial killer case and who's behind it. In the last episode, we explored the events of May 1st, 2010, when Shannon Gilbert, a New York City escort, took a call that brought her out to the gated community of Oak Beach, Long Island. That night, or early morning rather, Shannon would end up spending 23 minutes on a 911 call claiming that there were men trying to kill her before she vanished in the small, sleepy beach hamlet about an hour east of the city. Finally, in December of that year, a canine officer out training his cadaver dog, about a mile from where Shannon disappeared, stumbled across something. John Malia, the canine dog that he had at the time was the only cadaver dog that Suffolk County PD had. And for the most part, came- This is Dominic Verone, former chief of detectives for the Suffolk County Police Department, which I'll also refer to as the SCPD. But whenever John Malia had some downtime, he would drive over the bridge, which is like 15 minutes, you know, onto the barrier beach and continue to search areas. And he would do this uh, for months. 
and ultimately uh, until December when he found the body and so, which we believe to be Shannon Gilbert. We have this day located a set of skeletal remains. We believe at this time to belong to the missing Shannon Gilbert. It would take time to identify the body that was found and confirm if it was indeed Shannon Gilbert. Before that, it's critical to learn more about Shannon and who she was. So in going through her computer, I came across Shannon singing. And this was five weeks before she, well, you know. For someone like Shannon Gilbert, who had the dream, talent, and determination to sing professionally, how did she end up in this world to begin with, this escort life that would end up bringing her out to Long Island? Here's journalist Robert Kolker, who wrote Lost Girls, the New York Times bestseller that delves into so much about this case. Shannon grew up in Ellenville, New York, which is a small town that's really geographically like halfway between New York City and Albany. It's kind of in the, the foothills of the mountains and it's near a lot of state prisons and it's seen better days. In the beginning, it was Shannon living with her mother Mary, Shannon's father, and eventually her younger sisters. But according to Shannon's former boyfriend, Alex Diaz, the arrangement didn't last long. Maria and the father, they were drug addicts, big drug addicts. He ended up leaving, yeah, he left the whole family. Then tensions grew between Shannon and her mother Mary. She was, I think, probably like five or something or six, and she would speak up but to the people. And then I think the mother found out or something, and she was scared that Shannon might, I guess, give some information that, that was going on in the house. So the mother decided to give her out to foster care. This is a really peculiar situation because Shannon ended up going to school with her, her sisters and seeing her family all the time, but feeling as like an outsider to her family during that time. Now, when I talked to Mary Gilbert, Shannon's mother about this, she said that there were good reasons for this, that there, that Shannon had, was unstable, that she was bipolar, that she wouldn't take her meds, that she was impossible to parent. But when Robert Kolker talked to Shannon's friends and her sister Sherry, he heard a different story. I hear about a very sad girl who was very upset not to be a part of her family. It's a, a difficult family to live in. Mary was a difficult person, a hard worker who never accepted public assistance and, and was always you know, working hard to support the children who were in the house. But it was a, a lot of conflict inside that house. And so for a while there, it looked like Shannon actually had the better half of the deal. She didn't have to grow up in a house with so much conflict. There were bad boyfriends. There was abuse at the hands of one of those boyfriends. Shannon escaped all of that. But she still felt like she was the one who had been ejected. Shannon, we used to tell Marie, why can't I come back where my sister is? And so she basically left Shannon to live foster kids for, for years. And so she became a teenager, I think. That's when she tried to come back. Despite her turbulent childhood, from most accounts, Shannon was bright and very driven. Shannon was a, you know, a lot of charisma. She was a natural performer. She loved to sing. Uh, she performed in school plays. She had lots of friends and worked hard in school and seemed to get good grades. And once her you know, foster family situation got her to a better high school, she actually had some academic promise as well. She graduated like first at certain classes. She, you know, she was always like, 
she did so good, she skipped the grade. And so she told me that she was good at literature and, and poetry and all that stuff like that. She used to talk to me sometimes, use, use these big words I never heard. Shannon, as a girl, dreamed of singing. She wanted to be on Broadway. She wanted to be in movies. She wanted to perform. She used to write a lot of poetry, good poetry, which I still got to this day in my house. And um, she sing, oh, she used to sing. She enrolled in college for a time, but uh, she had dreams of performing in New York. And she wanted to audition in plays in New York. And she had a boyfriend who, for a time, they were, you know, he was helping her go to New York to audition. They always requested her back, like, yeah, we would like to see you do some more work. They figured that she had some type of talent. But at some point, things changed for her, and she wanted to move a little faster and get a little more money. And so she found work working for escort services, first in Jersey City, and then on her own uh, on Craigslist. Even when she was an escort, she was enrolled in classes and taking classes. She never stopped being ambitious. But escort work wasn't only about accelerating Shannon's future. The money was just as much about her past and trying to reconcile it. Shannon viewed it as a way back into the good graces of her mother. Her mother knew what she was doing, and her sisters. And they used to ask, sometimes ask Shannon for money, basically. Sometimes Shannon used to give her money. That was a little strange. And then if Shannon didn't give them money, then they'll, you know, they'll have a fit with her. They wouldn't talk to her, be like a, they'll have arguments. But as soon as Shannon gave them money, then they all, everything's good. You know, everybody's you know, in a good mood. They never really connected until years later when Shannon came back as a financial success and was able to, you know, shower the family with gifts and, and suddenly things warmed up for her there. Here, Alex Diaz is joined by Michael Pack, Shannon's former driver. If you need help, she'll give you a last dollar. Like, you know, she'll make sure you're good, like, before. She's very generous. Yeah, she's super generous. Like, well, she was not cheap with money. Let's say she, if she's with you and then she buys food or something, she'll buy it for you. And she'll be like, no, it's all right. You know, she wouldn't accept the money back. She was lost in some ways, but, but in other ways, not at all. She had a plan for the future. And it was all hinged around proving herself and her own self-worth in a way that she wasn't able to do when she was a child. Shannon knew, for her at least, escorting was not a long-term solution. She quit a time or two and would only go back when money was tight. She ended up getting a regular job and it just wasn't working out for her. So then she ended up, she felt like, oh, let me just go back. For, just for a little bit. Yeah, that day when she went missing, she said she needed money for rent or something. Yeah, well, she got into it because of the fast money. After World Class Party Girls was shut down, Alex quit driving. Meanwhile, Shannon, when she would dip back into the escort world, began working consistently with Michael Pack as her driver. This partnership went on for nearly a year before that fateful night would take the two out to Oak Beach in Long Island. Here's Robert Kolker talking about the impression he got from Shannon's driver, Michael Pack. It's just when you meet him and you talk to him, he seems a little hollow, like he, he, that he really isn't acting with any sort of conscience. He was a pretty cagey guy, you know, sort of evasive, didn't really want to talk much about his involvement in the case, except to insist that he had been polygraphed and that he had nothing to hide. We had the same experience with Michael Pack, especially when he joined us with Shannon's former boyfriend, Alex. But we did get to spend some time with Michael Pack alone. This is the car that I drove Shannon in that night to Brewer's house. We took a ride with Pack and it allowed him to be more reflective about that night with Shannon. In foresight, I, I would have uh, driven down the other row of houses. Um, 
I didn't know there was another rough house there, so I would have looked for her there. Or if I couldn't find her there, then. <coughs> I'll definitely, you know, call the cops. They, they could help. But I heard the cops came anyway and they didn't really do anything. Pack also spoke about some of the criticism he's received over the years. For some people who say that I just left her there and didn't look for her, which is not true. I looked as much as I could over an hour and I called her, texted her, called out her name, looked everywhere, asked neighbors. And in that unfamiliar area, I exhausted all possibilities, but she she made, me, made it clear to me that she didn't want to be found. The bigger story surrounding Shannon's disappearance in May 2010 would be the eventual discoveries made some seven months later in December of that same year. But during those long months while Shannon was missing, the issue became far more than that of finding a woman who'd wandered off. Given her profession in the community of Oak Beach, those seven months were destined for half-truths and deception, and some would even say murder. The last person, apparently, who, at least according to the public records, saw Shannon Gilbert alive is a neighbor in Oak Beach named Barbara Brennan. She lived uh, down the road that Shannon ran after leaving Gus Coletti's house. She saw Shannon outside, and she called 911 saying that there was a woman in distress. And if you recall from the previous episode, after Barbara Brennan didn't let her in, Shannon ran off into the night. So if we're to believe just the public record, that's when Shannon Gilbert disappeared. Now there's all sorts of speculation and conjecture about who else might have known about what was going on. And much of that speculation pointed at Barbara Brennan's neighbor, someone who many saw as a pillar of the Oak Beach community. There are people who say that Dr. Peter Hackett happened to live exactly in that spot, you know, just as close as Barbara Brennan did to where Shannon disappeared, and that he was a trusted member of the community and a doctor, and that it makes perfect sense that someone might have called him to let him know there was trouble. As this aspect of the story unfolds, it might help to have a better understanding of Oak Beach's layout. The community is hidden off of Ocean Parkway, a desolate and lonely four-lane highway. Once you exit for Oak Beach, you end up at a small, single-acre-sized park that looks south over the Atlantic Ocean. To the right are roughly 75 homes that are easily accessed, for the simple reason there's no gate. And in the other direction, once you drive down a quarter-mile access road, you come to an unmanned guard shack rigged with three security cameras and a large security gate. Beyond it, the road branches out east and west along the ocean for about a mile, where there are 70 or so homes ranging from million-dollar McMansions with ocean views and access to run-down and weathered bungalows like Joe Brewer's that will set you back a few hundred thousand. And just as fast as Joe Brewer ran from any involvement in the disappearance of Shannon Gilbert, Fellow Oak Beach resident, Dr. Peter Hackett, ran straight towards it. Dr. Peter Hackett had lived in Oak Beach for about 20 years when Shannon disappeared. You know, his family, his kids had grown up there. He was a neighborhood institution. Dr. Hackett is characterized, even by his biggest supporters, as a busybody and a talker. But by the time we were on this story, Hackett had finally retreated from public view. Earlier on, however, while Robert Kolker was researching his book, Lost Girls, he was able to spend some time with the Oak Beach doctor. 
He was probably the only doctor, the only active one. Um, he was known and trusted there as the one to turn to with any small problem. And just days after Shannon went missing, Alex Diaz made his second trip out to Oak Beach looking for answers. And for this trip, he brought along Michael Pack. Michael and Diaz were there to knock on doors, but they didn't get very far because the neighborhood called uh, their Johnny on the spot, do-gooder guy, Dr. Peter Hackett, to come and meet them and intercept them and handle it. Yeah, you're like a big shot there. The president of the, the Old Beach community or something. So I thought he was the right guy, you know, because everybody told me to tell Hackett about this problem. And Hackett came, he pulled a notebook out, he started taking notes the way that a police officer might, asking them questions about the missing person, basically suggesting that he had connections to the Suffolk County Police Department. Dr. Peter Hackett, uh, I didn't know at all, you know, prior to the case, but apparently he... he Again, this is retired Suffolk County Chief of Detectives, Dominic Verone. We learned about him, we looked at him, and... Um, he did himself, we now know, uh, he, he clearly inserted himself into the case. He told me not to worry about it. He goes, don't worry about it. He goes, I'm going to have police come over. You could go home and, you know, you relax and I'll keep in touch with you. And both Pack and Diaz remember at the time walking away thinking that this guy was going to be helpful for them. What we know now is that Hackett didn't call the Suffolk County Police Department. He might have been questioned by them later. They might have been very interested in the notes that he took later, but he didn't even offer them to them. For Hackett to claim law enforcement connections and offer to help find Shannon, even if he didn't follow through, is one thing. What Hackett actually did is something perplexing and entirely different. Yes, at some point, uh, and, and I don't have the dates in front of me, but uh, there's clearly documentation that Dr. Peter Hackett uh, called Shannon Gilbert's mom in the residence. And that evidence was a, a couple of phone calls she got a few days after Shannon disappeared from a guy who identified himself as Dr. Peter Hackett, who in her memory, she remembers him saying that he ran a home for wayward girls in Oak Beach, that he lived in the area where Shannon disappeared, that he tried to help her that night, and he wanted to know if she made it home all right. According to Mary's recollection of the call, Dr. Hackett claimed that after treating Shannon that night, she then left the next morning. What we know now is that uh, Hackett made these calls right after meeting Alex Diaz. Yeah, he said, oh, you know, I'll keep in touch with you. And then he asked me for um, Cherie's number and the mother's number and stuff like that. And we're pretty confident the way he got those phone numbers is Alex Diaz and Michael Pack, within two days, went back to Oak Beach, knocking on doors and leaving phone numbers and asking anybody they could, showing pictures and asking about her. The belief that Dr. Hackett got Mary Gilbert's number from Alex Diaz is important to note here. This is because some of the theories implicating the doctor are built around the idea that the only way he could have gotten a hold of Mary was through Shannon, so Hackett must have seen her that night. But we now know, in all likelihood, Dr. Hackett got Mary's number from Alex. What we don't know is why Hackett took it on himself to call Mary why he would say something fictional about running a home for wayward girls, why he would insert himself into the case in this way, and more importantly, why he wouldn't be acting in concert with the Suffolk County Police Department. If he really was the do-gooder that he said he was, if he really wanted to help solve this case, why wouldn't he make a single phone call to the Suffolk County Police? Yeah. 
You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store, but did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And even according to some neighbors, Dr. Hackett claimed he saw and treated Shannon that night. However, there are things Dr. Hackett did that would indicate he had no idea where Shannon was and thus was not involved in her disappearance. Well, we have to be fair to Dr. Peter Hackett. It seems as if he definitely did take some steps in the community to try to raise awareness about Shannon's case. We also know through Shannon's family who have hired investigators to look into it, that he took other steps to independently look into Shannon's whereabouts, uh, even talking to investigators in Jersey City, all not under the auspices of the Suffolk County Police Department. Now, as strange as all of Dr. Hackett's claims and actions were, it did fit the man's history. He loved to embellish and be at the center of things. In the 90s, when Hackett first moved to Oak Beach, he installed an emergency light on his car, bought a police scanner, and would respond to nearby EMT calls. But that's minor. He had worked in emergency services uh, for Suffolk County. He'd even worked on the TWA 800 plane crash, helping people. But eventually, he was edged out of that job, reportedly. According to Newsday, he had been uh, exaggerating his role in uh, certain events that emergency services department took part in. For some background, in 1996, just minutes after taking off from JFK, TWA Flight 800 exploded over the Atlantic, just off Long Island's South Shore. This huge, horrific event was worldwide news. But for Dr. Hackett, his actual involvement with recovery efforts wasn't enough. He would go on to make wild claims like how the Coast Guard flew him out and lowered him into the water so he could swim through the wreckage to examine a body. He also faced a couple of malpractice lawsuits trying to help people, and um, he got, you know, sort of pressured out and or retired early. Dr. Hackett's departure from emergency services was just one year after the Flight 800 tragedy. Even Newsday, Long Island's biggest newspaper, published harsh words about the doctor. 
In an article, critics were cited as calling Hackett, quote, an erratic would-be hero who embellished his achievements and meddled with volunteers' work while neglecting his job as an administrator. Even his close friends, people like Gus Coletti, told me that he had a problem sort of as a storyteller, as a, as a fabulist. And so you, you've got a guy who kind of has an overinflated sense of himself and run out if he, you know, there was any trouble. So sort of two sides to the same kind of uh, white knight complex. So Dr. Hackett is intriguing, to say the least. And given the context, it's not far-fetched that he gets involved once Shannon goes missing in 2010. But what makes him more mysterious is that a year later, when Mary Gilbert went public saying that Hackett had called her, he denied it. He denied it for months. Until his phone records came to light. Finally, he was forced to admit that he'd been lying all along. Which leads to the question, what was Dr. Peter Hackett hiding? Given the fact that it was just a missing escort, that question didn't seem to concern Suffolk County Police. In December of 2010, I decided to take a trip out to Long Island and finally knock on the door of Dr. Peter Hackett. Um, I didn't know what I would find there. I didn't know whether he would want to talk to me. He had already been uh, through the ringer with CBS News and had sent letters to them not being interviewed on camera, but in letters he had uh, owned up to the fact that he had been denying uh, the truth about how he had talked on the phone with Mary Gilbert. He still hadn't given a good explanation for that. And so I knocked on the door and there he was and he looked exhausted and irritated and annoyed. And much to my surprise, he invited me in. And, you know, he made a little joke walking me around the house saying, this is my operating room. You know, there was a rumor that he worked on Shannon that night in, the, in his house. Dr. Hackett went on to say that he was shocked by all the things being said about him on the internet. That he dedicated his life to caring for people and there's no way he'd be involved with something like Shannon's disappearance. But then as he continued to talk, he started to say things that were inconsistent with uh, things he had told the media just a few months earlier. He said to me that he never talked to Shannon's mother and after he'd already told CBS News he had. And I corrected him and he said, oh, I get a lot of calls, I don't remember what happens. So with all the accounts in context, we asked Kolker, as a seasoned journalist, what was his overall impression of Dr. Hackett? So I, I got this sense of a guy who sort of shaped his own reality as he talked. I did not necessarily get the sense that I was talking to a master criminal or somebody who was capable of murder, but I could see how he would you know, tumble through life, sort of over-elaborating and exaggerating. And I came away thinking it would be plausible to think that he would have seen Shannon that morning, that he would have tried to help her the way that neighbors say he said he did, that he would have been wrapped up in this case. And then just as quickly, after calling Shannon's mother and trying to do what he could, he would try to extricate himself from the case. He would try to pull away and not be uh, a public figure in this. But by then it was too late. And it was too late for Dr. Hackett in regards to some of his neighbors. Oak Beach is a neighborhood where everyone knows everyone. There are only 72 houses behind that gate. And so everyone knew Peter Hackett. I talked to several neighbors and they all agreed that, you know, Dr. Hackett was sort of a, a storyteller and, uh, you know, an exaggerator, but not necessarily a bad guy. But then there was a small but vocal faction of neighbors who had a lot of thoughts regarding Dr. Hackett and they were led by the Scalise family. They talked to me about 
how they felt that he was wrapped up in a larger conspiracy. They had a theory for how Hackett might have insinuated his way into Joe Brewer's date that night. For the Scalise family, their issues with Dr. Hackett began well before Shannon vanished. He led the Homeowners Association and had attempted to kick the Scalise family out of Oak Beach for homeowner infractions. Given this history and Dr. Hackett's overall annoying behavior, along with the rumors about his involvement with Shannon's disappearance, was enough for the Scalise family. They uh, are ready to pin this entire thing on Hackett and his friends, and it's, uh, it's un it seems pretty clear the police haven't taken any of it seriously. And the only hard evidence that would corroborate it is the fact that Hackett denied being involved at all, when in fact it, it seems clear that, at the very least, he called Mary Gilbert. By all accounts, it took the police a while to take any of it seriously. Although at least some of what drove that initially seemed out of their control. Well, we know that Shannon was on the phone with 911 for something like 23 minutes. We know now that she was switched around from the uh, local 911 to the state 911 when she said something about being near Jones Beach. She remembers Jones Beach because when you come over the parkway in that area, there are all kinds of signs that say Jones Beach before she traveled east. So that would put her in the area of New York State Police's jurisdiction. And we know that it took several weeks for that state 911 call to be connected to Shannon's case because she never told them her name. And the Suffolk County didn't know that Shannon was even missing until uh, the missing persons report had made it from Jersey City where Shannon lived. But according to neighbors, it would take three months before they saw the police again. According to Gus Coletti, who saw Shannon that night, he claims he didn't see the police again until August. And it was a little surprising to him because it seemed like too much time had passed to make a difference. Although you might also argue that if she had been the daughter of a judge or the daughter of a doctor and invited to a party at Joe Brewer's house, that the police might have worked a little harder to find her. You're asking about some of the criticism uh, that I've heard regarding our investigation, Suffolk County Police's investigation. Uh, one of the issues was the, um, the gated community, and there's a videotape uh, at the gate. And uh, periodically, I think every week, that videotape is, you know, run over, uh, you know, videoed over. Um, that was lost. Uh, by the time investigators uh, uh, got to that, uh, it was too late. If that's the case, it makes sense. One question we've had about the gate video goes back to Dr. Hackett. Clearly, he inserted himself into the case and he liked to play detective, so why didn't he grab that footage? He was one of just a few people who had access to it. He talked to Diaz and Pack just days after Shannon vanished, so the footage of whatever happened that night was still available. Perhaps there is a sensible answer to why no one saved that footage but we haven't come across it yet. But back to the Suffolk County Police Department. There were more things that they appeared to overlook or ignore. For example, during the rest of the year Shannon was missing, they never asked her family for her computer or any personal items that might have held clues. However, SCPD did look into Shannon's driver and her John that night. Michael Pack and, uh, and Joseph Brewer, they were subjects of concern and uh, we took a very close look at them. Uh, they agreed to take polygraph exams. We listened to the 911 tape, 
and their description uh, of what occurred uh, was consistent with what we heard on the, on the tape. Former Chief of Detectives Dominic Verone is one of the few people who've heard Shannon's ominous 23-minute 911 call. Well, it's a disturbing call. It's compelling because you hear a woman who makes utterances of concern. Um, she is very obviously incoherent at times and seems to be irrational. Uh, Gus Coletti described her as being in a trance. And when you listen to the audio, you, you kind of, uh, you kind of really realize that Shannon is not comprehending very well. We may never know exactly what happened to Shannon that night, what caused her to go into a panic, but there are theories that have come out. The disturbing things on the tape is they're after me, they're trying to kill me. That certainly raises our concern, and our initial belief was that she was in, in, in danger. Retrospectively, we look back and we piece it all together. It appears that she was in some type of a psychotic or drug-induced state. I know uh, she has some mental issues. We now know from family members that some described her as bipolar. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Shannon's struggle with bipolar disorder was mentioned earlier in this episode. Mary Gilbert... Shannon's mother said that Shannon was unstable, that she was bipolar, that she wouldn't take her meds. But it's impossible to know what role it might have played when it comes to the events of that night. She used to take bipolar drugs, but she started taking them, she told me. Even before she met me, she started taking them for the fact that she said it makes her gain weight or something. So she told me that she started taking it. She decided to basically deal with it normally, her own. And that's the only, that's the only mental issue that she had that I know was bipolarness. Oh, so she never had other personalities? No, just about pulling this. Like, maybe she'll be happy with you at the moment, and then she used to go, she'll snap her at you. Lows. Yeah, she'll snap at you, I don't know, but then she'll start crying out of nowhere just because you say something. My boyfriend, uh, Alex Diaz, indicated that she used cocaine at, at times. Uh, we know that uh, her and Alex, the day before the night that she went missing, uh, they went and saw the new release of Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, so she saw that movie. Um, we don't know what kind of psychotic state she was in. She had very little sleep. 
and she takes almost uh, an hour and a half drive to Oak Beach, and we don't know exactly what she ingests or takes uh, while she's at Brewer's house. So none of the voices you're hearing are that of psychiatrists, myself included. But given all the elements of that night, it's worth acknowledging SCPD's theory that Shannon was experiencing some sort of psychotic break. But it's certainly, putting it all together, it seems very clear to us that here was a girl in a panic state, in a state of paranoia, uh, running off and trying to get help. But then when she, when she gets to a place where, where, where she could get help, uh, she just stares at, at Gus Coletti and then runs off. And one thing that might shed light on it all would be to let others, beyond a handful of law enforcement officials, listen to Shannon's 911 call. Her family, the press, and others have been asking for its release. But Suffolk County PD has refused, even though they claim there's really nothing on the tape. And they don't suspect foul play in Shannon's disappearance. Thus, the call is not being held up because of some ongoing criminal case. By the end of 2010, there are a few answers and some glaring questions. What happened to Shannon and where did she go? Then, almost by chance, a canine officer training his cadaver dog comes across something. On December 11th, 2010, the police are along Ocean Parkway and they find a body. They thought it was going to be Shannon Gilbert who had disappeared just seven months earlier, uh, just a few miles away from that location. But there's a defining feature with Shannon, a titanium piece of her jaw from her surgery. Back in 2009, after Alex hit Shannon, she ended up with a broken jaw. To fix it required surgery that left her with a metal plate attached to her jawbone. Yeah. We was uh, arguing and uh, we was fighting and I, and like I was mad. I, I lost my temper that one day and I, I hit her. You know, I guess I didn't know how hard I hit her and then she could talk to you and eat. I don't know what they did. They just put something there, like a metal plate. And whoever is discovered along Ocean Parkway, the skull does not have this titanium piece attached to the jaw. Mary and the rest of Shannon's family are left reeling. But if it's not Shannon, who is it? As the news broke, a family in Buffalo, New York, heard about this grim discovery and had their world blown apart, again. One night, Jeff and I were sitting on the couch watching Nancy Grace, and all of a sudden, they discovered a body in Long Island, and there was a helicopter up in the air. This is Lynn Bartholomew from Buffalo, New York. For 17 months, my daughter Melissa was missing. We had no idea where she was. We didn't know if she was alive or dead. And they said that they had found a female remains, skeletal remains, approximately 24 to 26 years old, four foot nine. Jeff and I just started crying. We knew it was her. Coming up in the next episode of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer. All of a sudden, my phone rings, and it says, Melissa. You know, I answer the phone, and there's a man on the other line. It's not my sister, and I'm thinking maybe somebody found her phone. By the third call, the police start to take the case seriously, and they are able to start tracing the call. And they do trace it. They trace it to cell towers in Massapequa, Long Island. I'll say he called four to five times. Um, the voice was always the same. Type of things that he was saying were the same. I'd lead on from something that he had already said. 
He just called her a whore, said what he did to her, things like that. So he opened the car door and he went in and he got the 50 cents and he gave it to me. And as soon as I turned around, he struck me with a closed fist right here. And then he put me in his car. This has been the second installment of season one of Lisk, Long Island serial killer. If you enjoyed the show, we ask that you please tell your true crime friends to listen, review, and subscribe. This episode was written, produced, and recorded by myself, Chris Moss, Jonathan Beale, and Shannon McGarvey. Editing and musical composition by Blake Maples. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzarden, Jonathan Beale, and me, Chris Moss. Brought to you by Mopac Audio. For more information, including exclusive photos and videos, go to liskpodcast.com. L-I-S-K podcast.com. If you suspect human trafficking, contact the National Human Trafficking Hotline by texting HELP to 233-733.